You're listening to One Good Take, the podcast that delves into the nitty-gritty of film development and distribution and explores the often elusive chemistry that brings the film to life. For episode 12, I got together with Alexia Maloki of Little Studio Films. Alexia is something of a polymath. She started out as a sales agent, making use of her language skills. She only speaks five languages, by the way. Then turning her hand to producing independent films. Over the years, she's added to those roles, becoming a manager of the talent she works with, as well as consulting and packaging for a whole range of projects in TV and film. She has a tendency, she says, to want to look after stray cats, by which she means people and projects that need a home. Well, I think we can all warm to that. Here we go. Hi, Alexia. How are you doing? Hello, Nicholas. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm very excited to speak to a fellow filmmaker. Great. And uh, how's it been in the last eight months for you uh, during the pandemic, work-wise? Oh, my goodness. Do you know, being the eternal creator, um, because, you know, although I'm on the business side of, of the filmmaking and television production side, um, I am a huge fan of artists and I tend to want to always create. I, I always have to do something, right? So when everything went belly up during the pandemic, I... I launched a podcast like you did, um, which is called The Heart of Show Business. And I thought, okay, I need to keep all my friends in the business motivated and have them renew their love and their passion for film and TV. So what's a better way than to just interview them? But then what I also did, it was a perfect time to sort of go through our clients' properties, the the films that we are attached to produce so that we have in development and really look at what we truly, truly well well feeling passionate about and what we really we what really spoke to us, you know, because ultimately as an artist you have to only do things that really speak to you and not just do things for the purpose of commercial, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So it was a good reflecting time. That's all it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did, did you find that a number of your projects got completely stuck? You know, they were sort of just about to go into production and everything had to sort of slow down and all that. So many producers are finding that a problem, you know, the insurance, the quarantine and so on. Yeah. Yes, yes. We actually had a movie that was going to start production in July uh, with an Italian director and was going to be filmed in the United States. Uh, you know, we already were ready to go. Basically, we had found the studios to film them here and everything. And then, of course, the financing fell out because um, it was a combination of pre-sales with international distributors. And then it was one of my distributor clients that I represent who is in the Middle East. And as you know, um, they have had major issues exporting their um, foreign currency out of the country. Um, and that never really got handled. And then with the pandemic, it got worse. So basically, I was ready to go and everything went belly up. So I, I'm hurt, but I'm even more hurt for all the wonderful artists and the filmmakers and the writers and the actors who are so passionate about it and ready to go. Yeah. And that went belly up. So there we go. Back to square one. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah. Have you got any chance of uh, rescheduling early next year? Oh, yes, absolutely. I am somebody who's 
who feels never say die. Um, I mean, we all hear those stories, right? When you go to the Oscars and you hear those people get on the podium and say, you know, this movie, I've been working on it for 12, 15 years, 20 years. I mortgaged my house. I did all those things. and, And you go, oh, gosh, I can totally relate to that, right? So, no, I am not somebody who's going to easily give up. And uh, I have full confidence and belief that that, as well as many of the projects that we are working on, you know, some of the clients that we consult for, um, and also our own, are going to happen sooner or later, right? We're all gamblers. We have to keep going. (laughs) Exactly. You have your own company, Little Studio Films, and uh, you have a number of roles, really, don't you? As as your consultant, you package projects, you uh, represent talent, you produce. You started in in sales, right? And yes. distribution side of things. Um, yeah. So, give us a little bit of a, a background on how you evolved from that point. Yeah. Well, I have to say I am extremely grateful, and even more so today, of my international distribution and sales background. I I've been doing this since I was basically fresh out of high school, so that that tells you how long ago that was. Although we're not going to say how many decades, because um, that's going to give away my age. But let's say it was. You know, a couple of decades a while ago. ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a few yeah. years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Damn, few... you've already given it away. <laughs> yeah, okay. exactly. I'm kind of, um, you know, who cares? Um, <laughs> 40 is the new 20, I would think. And there you uh, go. Yeah. Right. And so I've been doing it for a while and I really feel that it is a global business. And whenever I, so whenever I, end up representing somebody, um, although it's very, very rare. Um, They're usually multifaceted type of clients. You know, they're filmmakers who are also writers and producers who have already garnered some type of success in their field, which makes my job easier and justifies me just acting as a representative alone, right? Because when I make those calls to pitch them, it makes it a lot easier than me having to really constantly be convincing people on why they should be reading or considering this client. So I ended up going into a bit of a hybrid of of a consulting model. Well, for the distributors, firstly, because they know me for so many years. I used to sell movies. I sold over 35 movies to profit. Um, and I also know the buyers very well and they trust me. So those are the people that keep my company going. Um, I represent 11 major theatrical distributors and I scout for films for them, not just completed films, but films that are in development in any stage of production, really. So we do everything from them for covering scripts to verifying attachments, because so many times people say that there are certain actors that are interested in the movie, but they're really not. And, uh, you know, my clients are bankable distributors. And so we have to be very, very careful for them when they acquire a film. So we do a lot of vetoing on projects for them. And and then when it comes to our own films, I mean, it's a given that for either the clients I consult for or my represented clients, I will end up more often than not attaching myself as a producer or executive producer of sorts because my work is not just getting somebody to read something or consider something. It's just staying on board through thick and thin from the beginning 
all the way to when a movie is marketed, right? And so that's kind of like how I naturally evolved into being a producer. You know, I found myself raising money. I found myself packaging, securing distribution, doing pre-sales, utilizing basically my Rolodex of like 25 plus thousand people in every area of the world, including in finance, by the way, because I know you do trading, um, all those in branding and all of that to use all those relationships to be able to shepherd a project, hopefully to completion, but I'm somebody that doesn't give up. And so I stick through thick and thin with my clients, which is why I'm very, very selective as to who I choose because yes, they pay me, but, um, at the end, um, it's peanut money in comparison to the big fees that one one gets when something is actually done, right? And so that's the end game for me is get things done. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And how do you generally, if there is a general way of sourcing, how do you generally source your projects? Is it is it within your circle of represented clients or are, do you ever look outside that? How do, yeah. how do you come by them? Or are you scouring, you know, IP, that's a successful novel or a successful play, etc.? Yeah. Well, you know, I am somebody who is never egotistical about what I have. I'm not somebody, I'm a team player by nature. So it's never going to be like, oh, it's just my projects or my clients' projects. There's been many times where I have fellow producers that I love and respect and I've known for the longest time. So we will pick up the call and say, hey, Alexia, I have this project. Would you know, would you know somebody that can help it get going? And there is no reason why I shouldn't help my fellow industry friends out if if obviously there's going to be, you know, some sort of a contract for me if something pans out. So yeah. when it comes to dealing with my quote unquote friendly competitors, we're really never truly competing. We're always there to help each other out. That's one of the privileges of being a veteran in the business and having been doing this for 25 plus years is that I have a lot of great friends, right, in the business. Yeah, so yeah. I'm not going to be egotistical about and say it's either my project or my client's project so I'm not going to get involved this when it comes with things that come to me from other producers or other more corporate entities right when it comes to artists and filmmakers listen I mean I'm always open you know if there's something that has a specific proof of concept that I feel there is a market for it and I feel I can do something about it there is no reason why I should not be open to at least having a discussion with somebody even if they're not part of my client roster um why not I mean you're European as I am and we all yeah. know that the international marketplace is full of talent full of incredible filmmakers and full of incredible IP that many times gets shut down in the U.S. because you don't have the person that is going to give you access and mentorship and guidance and is really going to be there to champion and advocate for you. And I feel like I'm a little bit of all those roles, right? Yeah, it's so many roles. Uh, my head's spinning. I mean, it's, I, know. it's like, I don't know how you divide up your day between sort of producing and looking at scripts and then packaging and then talking to sales. Yeah. I mean, how many in, in one year, how many films do you tend to initiate as a producer and see through to the end as a producer? Oh, God, if you, I, if there I is have... a typical year. <laughs> 
I have to tell you, I'm even scared to look at my website because A, it's not updated. There's there's a few projects that I've actually had to give up on at some point because uh, the clients and I parted ways. And there are some new ones that I picked up during the pandemic of all places, like as if uh, yeah. I'm thinking it's all going to end tomorrow and we're all going to be back to normal. You know, I'm the eternal optimist. So I'm like, oh, yes, this sounds wonderful. Let's just do it. We don't know how we're going to do it. There's no money. There's no productions. But let's find a way right <laughs> so yeah right yeah I, I can't even count them nicholas <laughs> yeah no okay and so do you find yourself reading a bit more than you you were doing i mean just purely sitting down looking at reading scripts going through it making notes mm. i wish i wish i could say to you that that is the case i actually have found myself having less reading time uh, purely because I had to be putting out fires for my distributor clients who, uh, as you know, yeah. are in a crisis with everything that is happening. So I had to deal with a lot of those uh, corporate sort of scenarios, you know, with the business changing. Sure. So I haven't had a lot. And you know what I've done, Nick, is and and I think this is what I would recommend to many people. The industry is changing and this is a perfect time to leveling up your game and learning how you're going to make your content. How are you going to make your IP fly? I know you told me you had Jay, my friend Jay Todd Harris on your podcast. Yeah. And I, I tend to believe like he does. Everything is multimedia today. And I have been basically spending a lot of my free time doing online courses, learning how to produce on YouTube, how to podcast, how to uh, shoot my own yeah. content and script it, right? Okay. And you work with um, Alexandra Yekovlev. Yeah, she's your business partner, right, at Little Studio Films. You teamed up about 20 years ago? Uh, well, uh, we teamed up when I was born because she actually happens to be my mother. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Okay. <laughs> so that was an easy partnership to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just got stuck with her. Yeah, okay. Good. Yeah. yeah, I did. Yeah, it's interesting because you both speak several languages, so that kind of makes even more sense, yeah. Yeah, she actually went to school in England um, and I, I was raised by, you know, I had an English nanny and um, she was uh, in, uh, she was a debutant. Um, she had a flat on Mound Street. So, you know, I have English size, sort of. I have an English uncle, too, who passed away. And yes, her and I have been business partners since basically I was fresh out of high school. So we've been doing this together for quite a long time. Yeah. I guess you've learned a lot from her, um, inevitably, uh, if, if she's, I mean, her area of expertise is in finance, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. She deals mostly with the studios and also with the very high profile projects. And she deals with the financing and the networking at the highest level. I am a little bit of the Red Cross. So I champion all those filmmakers that I believe in. And sometimes I have to fight with her and our silent partners because they say enough is enough. It's like me collecting stray cats and stray dogs, right? Oh, okay. How many are you going to collect? You're a yeah. hoarder. <laughs> they keep telling me. So she she's she's a tough one i have to say and and we are a perfect balance at that because she brings me back to center and she just readjusts my focus and my clarity because i do being a master juggler like you told me i tend to look at all the shiny objects and have shiny object syndrome where like oh this sounds great let's just do it and i'm like 
uh, and how are you going to do this? We already have, you know, yeah. dozens of other things to do. <laughs> yeah, quite. Yeah. So, how many yeah. hours in the day? Yeah. Not yeah. enough, really. Yeah. How's the podcast going anyway? You, you, you started more or less the same time as I did. How's that going? Yeah, the podcast is going actually fantastic. I mean, it's a little bit different than yours. It's a little bit more open to the entire audience versus just more the film-centric, television-centric people who obviously want to talk about business and where we're, you know, dropping names yeah. like IP and whatever people know what we're talking about. So mine is a little bit more mindset-oriented. I've done a lot of personal development and self and self-help and growth in that since I was a teenager and I've always been fascinating about what makes winners win. And so I am trying to go into deep dive conversations with those artists and really get inside their heads and see what makes them tick and how they succeed at what they do. Because I do believe that mindset is key in everything okay. we do in life. Yeah. Well, let, me, let me flip that back to you then. <laughs> what's, what's the success of your mindset? I have to say, I I always introspect on myself. I I am a deep, deep believer in personal connections and in personal dealing with people. I I tend to want to give more than what I receive. When I get in the room, I want to give value to others. And and so whenever people come to me, I need to make sure that the people that are coming my way are willing to give me as much value as I give them. So I do, I'm a very, very big believer that everything is a two-way street. And I also believe in sweat equity. So, you know, I walk the walk and I talk the talk. And that's something that I learned in my personal growth. I, I learned to believe in myself to never accept defeat and whenever something is not going my way to always question not just do I have the right or the wrong project because we hear every day sometimes a project that you think it's never going to sell right Nick and then you go yeah. how did that person get in the room and sell it well that's yeah. mindset and attitude in my opinion that I, I that's the only way I can explain it and I really believe that if you have that as an artist uh, it will definitely give you the stamina to continue no matter what. It will give you longevity and it will give you also the humility to be able to constantly evolve with yourself and learn because it is a learning world, right? And you have to be passionate about what you are doing. If you don't have that passion and that clarity as to what is your why, why are you doing what you do? And that's something that I always ask my clients. You know, some of them are like, oh, I just want to make money or, oh, I just think this is going to sell and I'm just going to win an Oscar. Yes, but what is your why as a human being? Why are you doing what you do? And so I'm very clear as to what my why is. And so I demand that same type of introspection of everybody that I work with, whether it's client, consulting, associate, friend. I demand that. Yeah, yeah. Have you always been like that? Or is this something you've acquired, you know, sort of as an adult or through your family? Or is it is something quite innate for you? Or have you picked it up through through the years observing life, if you like? Uh, I would have to say that I picked it up through the years, but I did it very early. When I, um, I was very shy as a kid, you will not believe it. And I was very insecure. <laughs> 
And then when I was thrown into this world of worldwide distribution because of my languages and the fact that back then, you know, we didn't have the internet. So I was somebody that distributors needed to translate and, and help do those deals for them. I started getting more and more confident into my ability to sell, my ability to sit in a room and have a voice of my own. And when I started my own company with my mother, we had no funding whatsoever. There was just like the two of us. And uh, we Within a year of getting into distribution, we're talking like 1989, so that's like a long time ago, um, we made our first million dollars within the first six six months. Wow. And that yeah. was because I forced myself to get out of my little box of like, what are people going to think of me and how they're going to judge me? And I started connecting with people. And that's when I realized I was a damn good salesperson. I'm fluent in Greek. I speak Italian, Greek, Spanish, and conversational German. So that certainly helped. Very impressive. Yeah. Yeah, certainly helped, wouldn't it? I mean, make you uh, quite unique from America. I, I can't meet many Americans who speak that many languages, especially in the business, you know, I mean, yeah. Oh Very my useful. God. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you know, you're English, so for you, it's 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 a bit easier to be dealing with the people here. But when it comes to even being represented as an artist, I see that unless you are, you know, an A-lister like Sorrentino, you know, or you know anybody like or Vincent Casal or Javier Bardem or somebody that the agents are know are going to be making instant money with you, they're not going to represent you because you don't live here and you're international. And yeah. so I, I was like, well, there is an opening for me to scout and find voices and yeah. content to bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting, really. Yeah. But you yeah. can bring that in, you know, because it's a lot of Americans just don't know about it, you know. Um, yeah, exactly. It's great to be able to breathe life into it, into European content. Exactly. Good. I wondered if you could take us through almost like a case study of uh, a perhaps an independent film that you worked on that came to you as a script or even a book, whether it's an adaptation or an original spec script, and you fell in love with that project and you helped develop it and it went into production through your company. I wonder if you could talk to us about even just one example. That'd be great. Uh, yes. I mean, I think that the best case to give is the very first movie that I ever produced. And uh, because obviously I had no experience whatsoever in producing. And, uh, but I did have the knowledge of recognizing something that is good and it's going to travel from the international marketplace. So I, my very first movie was a medical thriller called The Drone Virus. And I did that back in 2006. So that's about mm -hmm. 14 years ago. Yeah. I, I was approached by, the, it, it was almost like a perfect storm, you know, like the synergy of like those perfect combinations and connections that happened for me at that time. I was representing an author. His name was Gerald Clark. And he had written this book called The Drone Virus, which was a really interesting thriller. He was a doctor himself. And it was a thriller about... 
uh, an MRI going wrong, where basically it was it was being used for children who were suffering with cancer. And then, you know, the MRI was basically, you know, injecting or, or, or damaging them. And and many of them were getting killed through it. And of course, the hospital was trying to cover up all of this because yeah. they wanted further funding. So I thought that the story was absolutely fantastic. And um I asked the author, the author came to me if I would represent him. And I said, absolutely. But I, you do need to hire a writer to write the script. And uh, so he ended up hiring one of my clients that that ended up writing the script. So there was a packaging right there. Yeah. And uh, then this director came to me. He was coming from the Pasadena College of Design. His name was Damon Austin. And he had sent me a short film that he had done. He used to work for Randall Wallace, um, who, of course, did We Were Soldiers and so many wonderful movies like Braveheart. And, uh, you know, he his short was epic, of epic proportions. Like it was a 10-minute short and it looked like it was done for $2 million at the time. And uh, it was so incredible. It was like this guy is has got the gift. He's hugely talented. So I signed Damon. I'm like, I'm totally going to represent you. But he wanted to turn that short into a film. And I'm like, that's going to be a little difficult as your first movie, yeah. you know, it's going to be very, very expensive. So I basically had him read the drone virus. And he says, Oh, my gosh, I really, really, really love the story is really, it's got so many great um, elements to it. You know, the thrills, the the father's dilemma, you know, the medical issues and the medical, you know, scandals that we hear every day. And he says, I'd love to direct it. So I put him in touch with the author. They have a conversation. And, and I said, well, let me take this project out with, the, with all of you attached, the writer, the director, and the author. And in that conversation, turns out that the author um, would like to invest to turn it into a movie. And uh, and he says, you know what? Um, because I said to him, listen, all of you are unknown and it's going to be very, very hard for me to get, you know, to, I can try to set up the project and sell it. But I do not know if it's going to sit in development hell and how long it's going to happen to to get made. And so he says, well, how much money do you think we need? And I think at that time it was like something like 800,000. Um, I said, well, my guesstimate, if we do this right and we pull in all kinds of favors, I think we can pull it off because Damon knew a lot of people. He had a fantastic DP. He was going to work for next to nothing. He had production designers, you know, he could resource all the people from his film school. And, and we thought that if we package this right, we could do this for a cost. And then, you know, Gerald said, well, I, I can get the money for you. You know, I can go to all my doctor friends really? and wow. we can all pitch in. And we can make it, but I need to have certain guarantees, of course, of distribution and all of that, which is my playground, as you know. Yeah. So that's how it all came about within, I would say it was a miracle, really. And that's why you never know, right? I thought I was going to yeah. do it the traditional way and try to set it up. And now, hey, there's all these people that, you know, of course, I had to bring in a producer who knew how to produce Um and uh, a friend of mine who used to work at Mandalay Pictures had just started his own production company. They needed to have a credit 
to get legitimacy. So I joined forces with them because, of course, they had resources. And uh, then, you know, we just put in all our heads together, you know, and the investor came into town, met with everybody, really loved everybody. I even arranged for a little dinner with a celebrity actor friend of mine who ended up not being in the movie. But of course, they got all starstruck because they got to meet him. And that certainly helped in the process of uh, let's finance this. And so we made the movie, you know, and I'm still very proud of that movie. I I still think it's a fantastic uh, little film. I mean, you can still catch it on Amazon and everything, but you really never know. And then, of course, we used our connections. I knew a lot of agents who represented actors and I ended up. Just many of them, again, it's a people business, Nicholas, and this is something that people forget. People are going to want to work with you, not just because you have a great project. They're going to work with you because you're easy to deal with and they like your personality and you're somebody who's a team player and you are fair. If you don't have that, you can have the best screenplay and project in the world. They're just not going to want to work with you. And so that's really what was the magic behind this movie is that everybody liked one another. Everybody picked up the phone and pulled favors because technically that movie would have cost two million if it was done the standard way. But we did it, you know, and that's always been my philosophy since then. Was cast uh, an important part of raising the money? Did you manage to get any actors who, you know, commanded a certain price? Interesting enough, um, and it's kind of like a sad story in so many ways, because we had some people who became A-listers down the road who submitted for those parts. Um, One of them was Jeremy Renner, who was really interested in the movie. And he had just come off of um, that, that, you know, that Showtime film that he was a serial killer. Like it's, you know, the the series that kind of made him. And it's funny because I I saw this kid and I'm like telling everybody, this guy's going to be a star, you watch. And he even met with the director and then the financiers didn't like him. And I mean, he, they just didn't think he was right for the part. And, you know, I had to listen to the money because the money was not dependent at that time on the distribution. And uh, it's not like we got a bigger name. I mean, we got a very good actor, Billy Wirth, but who was really good at the time. But it's not like we got a better name. And I had that happen multiple occasions. We had Katherine Heigl, who was submitted to us at the time. And this was literally three months before she went to do Grey's Anatomy. So I was like, oh, people, you should listen to me. I like to say, Nick, that I have a really, really good instinct on who's going to be a star. And that's always a challenge for me when it comes to selling it to my distributors or selling it to financiers is for them to trust my gut. And I can tell you there's probably at least like 20, 30 actors who are superstars today, including Brad Pitt, by the way, who also was submitted on a movie of ours back in the 90s when he did Thelma and Louise. And we were putting together a film and, you know, in pre-sales. And I said, you guys, this man is going to be huge. And they said, no. Really? (laughs) Yes. Can you? I still have his sad show here. Can you believe it? Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a good story. Yeah. And did you have pre-sales on this movie? You know what? 
I did not need to do pre-sales because everything was fully financed with equity. So, and they trusted me because of my background and the fact that I had done some research with my buyers, knowing that they will be potentially be interested in buying the film um, once it was done. So, and you know, Nicholas, as you know, in today's landscape today, I mean, back then it was easier. In today's landscape, we can just completely forget about pre-sales right now. It's not going to happen. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, I just came off of the American film market. As you know, I just wrapped it yesterday and I, you know, projects are submitted to us for my buyers and I saw some incredible, incredible screenplays, incredible you know, packages of A-list talent, A-list filmmakers and actors, and my clients are not buying. I think it's because of the pandemic, you know, Nicholas. I mean, you you know, before you needed the actors to guarantee the theatrical release, right? Because the theatrical window was something that was very, very um, necessary. Yeah, do you think that's going to change? I mean, Everything, of course, is becoming, everyone's talking about streaming, 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 and Netflix and so on. Uh, do you think, you know, we've sort of got a double whammy here that indie, indie films were already subjected to a, a smaller budget. You know, it was harder to raise money and pre-sales were a thing of the past. And now we've got COVID-19 to deal with as well. So there aren't even any cinemas open and they might not open for some time. So we've got a kind of double whammy for indie films or even films cinematic films cinema films yeah um so that is surely pushing things even faster into tv you know long-running series seasons one to six or whatever it might be um so writers going that traditional journey of you know here's your spec script get a manager agent and so on i i I almost wonder if people are going to skip over that and say well forget the feature Where's your TV series? You know your your Bible, etc. You know, it, yeah. do you see that? Do you see that happening a bit? Uh, Bigger emphasis know, on TV. I think you know whenever you see stuff like that in the news, it's it's pretty much stuff that it's six months old because whatever it's coming out in the news that you read about in real time has already been happening behind the scenes in yeah. Hollywood already six months going, right? So yeah, yeah. when it comes to the indie film, as I said, the, the pre-sales market is dead on, on multiple levels because also you have to know it's not just about having a theatrical window when you're selling or, or packaging a project. Is that for several international territories, the moment that you have a streaming deal um, for your U.S., say Apple or Amazon or Netflix, uh, your contracts internationally are going to get canceled. Uh, there is several international distributors who will not will not uh, continue their their the pre-sale process or the acquisition process of your movie because a streamer is involved purely for the reasons of piracy, right? Yeah, so they're like, why yeah. should I even bother and give you hundreds of thousands of dollars for my territory when you're going to release it on Netflix? It's going to be seen all over the world. Right. Yeah, yeah. So why bother, right? So that's yeah. that's obviously making a huge, huge problem 
for all of us in the terms of the financing model for indie films. When it comes to TV, yes, it is a new frontier. Yes, there is some amazing content, as you've seen. There's some incredible series. I'm I'm binging myself on Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and Apple Plus. I mean, it's the the content is so beyond excellent. But the problem is that in order to get into television, you have to be a writer who has an established television background. There is so much need for writers, showrunners right now, that the showrunners are so busy, like they literally have four or five series that they're writing on. And if you are unknown, you're never going to get a job on TV because you would have to first be a staff writer on somebody else's series. They're not going to pick up your series if you don't have a showrunner on board. So when in film, it's about talent. In television, it's about, it's going to be from the writers of Lost, from the writers of The Queen. So you would have to partner up with writers who have established series in order to get your own series on the ground. And so many of these showrunners are so busy, they literally are turning down paid jobs from the studios. Why should they attach themselves into your own series and go sell it in the room? You see? So, I mean, I'm speaking to friends of mine who have deals with Netflix and they told me, you know what? Netflix is completely full for the next three years. I mean, unless it's Will Smith that pitches them a project and then, of course, it's different or Brad Pitt. But um, as far as like IP is concerned, they have so much of it that probably they're not going to be even looking at anything new for the next three, four years. Yeah, yeah. So for any of the writers out there listening to this, uh, what how would you advise that they proceed from this point on? You know, should they be writing TV and hope to become a staff writer? Should they carry on writing a feature and finish that? What, what do you think with this shifting landscape they should be looking at? I would advise to all writers to put on their producer hat and understand that the job of a producer, it's humongous right now. And so in order for them to have better compassion and understanding for the people who are going to be championing their work, whether they're agents or managers or producers, they have to level up their games. They have to think like a producer when they're looking at their own script and see how can I get this done? And they have to completely, completely focus on their power of networking because right now, Nobody knows how something is going to come together. So you have to really talk to as many people as possible, try to offer your value, even if you have to barter, you know, say, listen, I really love your work as a producer. Um, What do you need me to do? I'll write for some stuff for you for free if you help me with my own passion project. I mean, you really have to network, network with other writers, maybe showrunners, go in and call them up and say, I know you're writing the series. Can I just you know, be your assistant, whatever, whatever it takes, you know, so that I can learn from you. Um, I'll do it for free. I'll work with you while you're preparing the series so that I can learn everything or how it's done. That's what I would advise. This is a time yeah. to network. And also when you think like a producer, if it's an indie film, then you really need to try to do some fundraising because in today's landscape, it is not going to happen without at least 30% of equity financing in place. So again, you have to level up there. You have to go and say, can I find, you know, um, 
equity financing firms? Can I find traders such as yourself that maybe have clients that maybe want to diversify their investments? Can I talk to, you know, the the accountant in the small town who has always had a dream about becoming a Hollywood producer? And can I talk him into giving me money or at least committing to some money for my project? I mean, you really have to be a master of all trades as, yeah. a, as a writer today. Yeah. Do you think most indie films that are in development now are kind of stuck for the time being in the sense that, you know, they can't get into cinemas at the moment. And if they go the streaming route, they're almost certainly not going to make their money back, are they, really? Uh, So it's quite a dilemma, isn't it? I mean, they could go forward and, and sell to Amazon or Netflix or whatever. But from what I hear, the return is really quite poor. Um, what, what's your experience of that? Yeah. Well, as an artist, you have to come to terms with the fact that you're doing something out of passion and not for the money. And then if the money comes, then that's a bonus. And so just think that whatever it is you do, whether you're a writer or a producer, you're going to make a small fee because of course you cannot ask for the, you know, huge fees in today's landscape, but then you can be proud that you've actually accomplished and produced something and hope that becomes your stepping stone to your next movie and your next movie. I have to tell you, storytelling, compelling storytelling, uh, character journeys uh, are still very valid. They're still very much of an asset. There will be a moment where there's going to be a gap and a void and there's going to be a need for content. And I, I see that happening very, very soon. Just like there's going to be a need for going back to the theaters. We've all been stuck in our houses for so freaking long. I think the cinematic collective experience is going to become huge again. I really feel that. And so use this time to prepare. And yes, of course, you might have to get some side jobs. You might have to be a bartender. You may have to go and work in an office in order to continue your passion, you know, but um, it is what it is. You know, I I also do that as well. It's like I, I can't finance my own films right now. I don't have development money to, to write checks left and right. So I just have to yeah. rely on my relationships, right? Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Everyone's feeling the pinch. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So how's your um, next, well, between now and Christmas looking for you in terms of what you've got going on? Well, you know, I definitely, you know, we're working on some very high profile uh, miniseries and series. As you know, we're working on the television series of Braveheart, um, which is a very high profile project and I'm very excited about. So we're in the process of finding a showrunner for that. Uh, we already have financing on that one because, of course, all the major broadcasters, you know, are jumping all over for this type of IP. Again, it's a brand, right? Braveheart. And, and you know, the author is actually descendant of, you know, William Wallace. He's oh, really? the chief wow. of the Wallace clan. Yes, he's an author. And so, of course, you know, the storytelling is really coming from the generations of the clan. And so it's a very viable, viable IP. But then we're also yeah. doing uplifting stuff. I mean, I've changed it up a little bit for some strange reason. I've been doing a lot of thrillers, as you know, not because I am to be honest, exactly passionate about those films. I am somebody who would much rather do romantic comedies, comedies, inspirational, animation, family films, biopics, you know, of interest. So that's what I would like to do. So 
as I've been reflecting on myself this past few months, I'm going to be doing some cleaning house and I'm going to be focusing on those type of messages. You know, we have a Christmas movie called Salvation Christmas that we're trying to set up. We already have cast on board and a director on board. You know, I have uh, a couple of family films, a couple of romantic comedies. And then, of course, I still need to do my uh, my film Under Pressure, which is the one with Cam Gigande and Emily de Raven, which kind of went belly up in July. And I still have to see that through. And then we also have our big temple movies, you know, like Galleon, which is this big, you know, 50 plus million dollar, you know, franchise action adventure film. You know, we have a studio um, producer on board. So we're going to be continue to package, continue to develop and continue to seek out partnership. And those people that will say, this is a phone call away for me. And that's what I really believe. Everything is a phone call away. You just need to find the right person who's going to say even to you, hey, Nick, oh, I really love what you say. You know what? I was talking to somebody last week who's looking exactly for what you're talking to me about. Let me make that connection. And that's what we need to do. We need to keep connecting with one another. It is so important in today's. This is a people's business. I still believe that 100%. Virtual or not? Yep, totally agree with that. And with that said, glancing at my clock, it looks like it's about time to wrap things up. It's been great talking with you, Alexia. Yes, it's been lovely. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, yes, of course, let me know when the episode comes out and I will blast it on my social for listeners to listen to my episode and also listen to the other wonderful guests that I saw that you've been bringing along as well. So I'll be more than happy to send my listeners over to you as well, because I'm sure that they can learn much from your guests. That'd be great. Thank you. I was talking with Alexia Maloki of Little Studio Films. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I'm Nicholas Penrake, and you've been listening to One Good Take. 